right. What is up, people? Welcome to the inaugural first edition, first episode of the Merlot and the Mob podcast. My name is Chris Merch. Across from me, my roommate, my coworker. Introduce yourself. Uh, this is Ryan Schucht. What's up, man? Nothing much, man. How you Just, doing? I'm good. Talking into a uh, crusty sock. A lot of bodily fluids could potentially be on this, and my, my mouth is about three <laughs> inches away. Indeed, we are using socks to muffle noise for the microphones because we are doing this in our very echoey old living room. Um, we're bare bones in this, people. We're keeping it pretty simple right now. Um, as we go along, hopefully we'll upgrade some equipment and get better. Um, and that comes with your feedback. But once again, I want to introduce you to the very first episode of this podcast. Um, it is about the mob and mobsters and just a whole bunch of crime and backstabbing, ratting people out, and really just everything having to do with the mob. Um, another aspect of this podcast is that we have formatted it as a drinking game. Um, me and Ryan will be drinking wine throughout. Um, we have a nice yellowtail $8 bottle of <laughs> Cabernet, I think it is. Um, yeah, so we basically, me and Ryan wanted to do this because we like learning about new things. Two things we know nothing about are wine and the mob. So, you know, we, we thought that coming in here and, and uh, doing some research, but not really because we're really just looking at the Wikipedia pages and going down the line. But we wanted some fan interaction. That's why we made it a drinking game. Um, but yeah, so you can obviously drink whatever you want for the drinking game, and I'll explain the rules in a little bit. But uh, just a heads up, this is a crime podcast. Um, there will be a lot of talk of murders, robberies, shootings. Um, if we're lucky, maybe some torture uh, and really just downright foul shit that people have <laughs> done to each other once upon a time. So it's probably best that you guys are drinking alcohol. Um, you know, it'll make us seem funnier than we actually are and probably get you through the uh, the crime aspect of it. Um, but yeah, like I mentioned, we're just two normal guys. We like learning about different things. And once again, wine and the uh, mob are two things that um, we don't know too much about. So we didn't do too much extensive research here. Like I said, basically what we are doing is we are going through one famous mobster per week and we're going through their Wikipedia page um, and we are just going right down the line reading about it. And I know what you guys are probably thinking. Oh, Wikipedia, it's not accurate. Oh, it sucks. You can't trust it. Oh, you guys sound like your dicks are small. Look, we know we know that <laughs> and shut up. All right. We want you people to think like we're we're your e-readers, we're your drunk e-readers, all right? So, you know, for Wikipedia pages, you guys can follow along, drink as you go. It's going to be a fun time. So the drinking game aspect, here are the rules. Um, so it's going to be one sip of your beverage, alcoholic or non-alcoholic, for each murder discussed. We're going to do one sip for each robbery, extension, uh, extortion attempt, sorry, or attempted murder. Uh, one sip for each stint in jail, and I have a feeling that one will be pretty plentiful. Um, two sips. If the person profiled killed an associate of theirs or had them killed, that one's probably going to be pretty popular too. Two sips if the person is arrested for a nonviolent crime, uh, and two sips if they have a noted turf war with another family. So if that is mentioned at length within the Wikipedia page, we will... Uh, sip at the end of that um, three sips if they escape prosecution um, three sips if they become a fugitive and go on the lam um, we're going to do half your drink um, hopefully it is close to the end by then if they turn informant uh, we're doing this on a wednesday night by the way people and i know ryan got uh, pretty trash last night as did i so uh 
It's going to be an interesting Thursday morning. Um, we're going to do half your drink if they get sentenced to more than 50 years in prison. And we're going to drink the entire fucking thing if they are still alive and out of jail or never went to jail. Um, I might need to do some reformatting on that. But you know what? These people, they go to jail for bullshit and they sometimes get out. Look at Al Capone and for tax evasion back in the day. All right. But so let's let's just get into it. Um, the first mob man we are covering today is Whitey Bulger. Ryan, what do you know about Whitey Bulger? You know anything about him? He's from Boston. He's from Boston. That's all, that's all I know, man. <laughs> he is the godfather of South Boston, Southie. Um, if you've ever seen the movie The Departed, Jack Nicholson's character is based on him. Um, like I said, we don't know too much about these people that we are profiling. We, we made it so, um, you know, we're kind of learning as we go along, and hopefully you guys are as well. Um, I do know a tiny bit about his later life because there is kind of a personal connection which is weird and we'll we'll talk about that um a little bit later ryan is looking at me like what (laughs) wake up with my head in the freezer yeah head in the freezer cleaver we're gonna um we're gonna find out about that a little bit later um but james uh, sorry james joseph whitey bulger god damn that is a mouthful was born in 1929 in everett massachusetts bulger's father james joseph bulger senior was from harbor grace newfoundland 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 i think that's in canada right yeah i believe so all right um huh this isn't russia no, is this Russia? No, it's not Russia. Uh, <laughs> James Sr. married Jane Veronica Jean McCarthy, a first-generation Irish immigrant. The elder Bulger, the father, James, worked as a union laborer and occasional longshoreman. He lost an arm in an industrial accident, and the family was reduced to poverty. Holy shit. One-armed worker, man. You're not going to make a lot of money with You're only not gonna, one arm. Do you think they cut your wages in half? I, th- I think so. I think you make... The amount of money that arms you have. <laughs> I agree. I think, well, that is just incredibly sad. Imagine coming home, your, your dad comes home from work. You know, you had a, a good day at school. You're like in the third grade. Mm-hmm. Hey, dad, you know, how, how was your day at work? How, how, how was it? Yeah. And then he's like, well, as you can see, I'm missing an arm. Okay, it, yeah. I do see that. Yeah. yeah, it looked like it was in a sling, maybe broken. Yeah, that shit's gone, son. Sorry about that. But uh, <laughs> in May 1938, the Mary Ellen McCormick Housing Project was opened in the neighborhood of South Boston. The Bulger family moved in, and the children grew up there. The other Bulger children, William Michael and John P. Bulger, excelled at school. James Bulger Jr., however, became drawn into street life. Early in his mm. criminal career, local police gave Bulger the nickname Whitey because of his blonde hair. Um, have you ever... I, I was listening to this other podcast, and they were saying how they've never met a black guy named Blackie, but they've met black guys named Whitey. Have you ever experienced that? That's not really common in this day and age anymore. But. Honestly, I've never heard of that. That's, that's pretty incredible, though, because that is completely contradicted to what what it's supposed to be exactly but yeah. dude i mean like that that first background that's that's the root of the problem right there you need to need to make some form of money yeah and you know what's poverty. you know what's funny is um that his brother we'll see later um had a very interesting life mm, and a very okay. positive slash negative it, it was kind of crazy um but yeah early in his criminal career he got the name whitey because of his blonde hair um bulger hated this name he preferred to be called jim jimmy or even boots yeah, those, that Oops. is his real name. 
Yeah, I would hate to be called something that I wasn't either. Yes. Yeah. That'd be like me calling you um, Lamp yeah. instead of Ryan. Yeah. Because you like lamps. Yeah. Yeah. So I like lamps. where do you think the name Boots came from? Oh, stomping if, people out. Yeah, honestly, I was I was gonna go there. I think the I think the boots came from from curb stomping. Yeah, smashing people's heads in with his boots. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that was his preferred method of killing people, uh, at least initially. Honestly, yeah, like young age, just roughing people up. That's a that's a good way to get. Don't the have job. a lot of access to yeah. weapons. Yep. anything like that. You ever seen American History X? No, I've not. Boy, there's a but curb I stomping scene. Did in there. just watch American Psycho and woo! Oh boy. Dude, it kind of like messed me up a little bit. It is, it's, yeah. It is kind of one of those movies. It's a it's, lot. It's kind of funny. It is. It's really funny. He's like the guy's like a uh, essentially a robot. Yeah. So that's it neither is. here nor there, though. <laughs> yeah. Let's get back into it. Um, the last nickname came from his habit of wearing cowboy boots. Um, so not from curb stomping people. He gotcha. wore cowboy boots. Um, interesting look in in Boston. I was yeah. about to say that might get you bullied in South yes. Boston in the thirties. Um, and his fondness for hiding a switchblade in said boots. Okay. Maybe we should not presume things before reading the next line. No. <laughs> However, the nickname Whitey did indeed stick. Early criminal career. Bulger developed a reputation as a thief and a street fighter, fiercely loyal to South Boston. This led to his meeting more experienced criminals and finding more lucrative opportunities. In 1943, 14-year-old Bulger was arrested and charged with larceny. Cheers. Ooh, first sip. First, even though I've taken there a few. Is. Are we are we cheersing? Yeah, we're let's cheersing. Get... I'm reaching across. There we go. All right. Ooh. If you're following along, remember it is a sip per arrest. Um, it could be for anything. So by so, then yeah. he had, yeah. It's a, it's a good game to play while you're driving as well. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I highly recommend that. Yeah. <laughs> by then he had joined a street gang known as the Shamrocks, and would eventually be arrested for assault, forgery, and armed robbery. I think that is another another one. We won't cheers this time. We're a little far away, but that is another sip right there. Does it say specifically what he forged? It does not. I'm assuming um, because he was broke, it was probably some form of currency. Check. Okay. Um, could be a fake ID, okay. something like that. Um, he was sentenced to a juvenile reformatory for these crimes. So childhood was, uh, was not great. He was poor. Dad had one arm. Yep. He just loved the streets. Yeah. Yeah, man. It's just out of like necessity. The guy's, the guy's just a shitty life as of right now. It's so like, far. it's hard to blame the guy. It's hard to be like mad at him as of right now. I feel like it's a cyclical thing. It is. I agree. hundred yeah. percent. It is. You, you have be- poor schooling. Yeah. Poor living. Couldn't imagine like the dad was too loving and caring, especially after getting his arm chopped off. Yeah. That In sounds pretty 30s. painful. Yeah, like, yeah. the dude's probably pissed off all the time. He gets beat off with the same hand every single time. <laughs> He's, like, can only pick his nose with one hand. Like, that's, that's a lot, man. The pick and nose part is the most brutal. What if you get your non-dominant get arm ripped off? Yeah, going lefty, dominant, sorry. going lefty for the rest of my life, um, it, would, it would definitely be an adjustment. Sucks. For sure. Like, I would, be, I would hit my kids 100% if I got my arm Yeah, I would off. be boozing all the time to deal with the pain. Absolutely. And then be smacking my kids up. Yeah. <laughs> We are kidding. This is a comedy podcast. I'm not. <laughs> Shortly after his release in April 1948, Bulger joined the U.S. Air Force, where his con- uh, character continued to show. After his basic training, he was stationed as an aircraft mechanic, first at the Smoky Hill Air Force Base in Salina, Kansas, then in Idaho. 
go to South Boston, then Kansas, then Idaho. That doesn't sound very great. Big journey. Oh, God. He spent time in the military prison for several assaults. <laughs> Cheers. Sipping again. Bang. Oh, wait. Hold on. Might want to hold that sip because he was later arrested by Air Force police in 1950 for going absent without leave. I believe that is two, sir. Jesus. All right. Yeah. That's uh, glass is getting low already. That's embarrassing. All right. Um, nevertheless, he received an honorable discharge in 1952 and returned to Massachusetts. Uh, this one is literally just highlighted prison. <laughs> so <laughs> in 1956, Bolger served his first term in federal prison where he was sentenced to time in Atlanta Penitentiary for armed robbery and truck hijacking. We're going to be hammered by the end of oh, this yeah. episode. Mm. Truck hijacking. I feel like that, you know, along with maybe some train robbery back in the day, was a pretty popular yeah. crime. I was going to say, that's like classic opening scene in any mob movie. It's yeah. just a big semi-truck with, I feel like there's always fur jackets in the back. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. meat. Yeah, I don't understand <laughs> why fur jackets were such a hot commodity mm-hmm. back in the day, but there's always a fur jacket in the back of the I truck. I think they represented class. Maybe they yeah. had a little bit of money. Now PETA would just be on your ass about oh. it. Oh, dude. You'd get shit on for robbing a truck with coats <laughs> in it. They'd be like, good job. You're keeping them off the streets, but it's still animals. Yeah, kill. man. God damn. Save the animals, dude. Save them. He later told mobster Kevin Weeks, who we'll, we will hear a lot about, okay. um, that while there, he was involved in the MK Ultra program, the goal of which was to research mind-controlled drugs for the CIA. Have you ever heard of the MK Ultra program? No. I would like to— Huge conspiracy. I would like to know about Let's that. See. For 18 months, Bulger and 18 other inmates, all of whom had volunteered in return for reduced sentences, were given LSD and other drugs. Bolger later complained that they had been recruited by deception and were told that they were helping to find a cure for schizophrenia. He described his experience as nightmarish and said it took him to the depths of insanity. If that is the biggest PSA for not doing acid, I don't know what is. Yeah, like a deranged person that is committing all these crimes that does not give a fuck about anyone or anything is saying that a drug is fucking them up. Right, which... That's terrifying. Dude, they gave you free drugs in prison. That is awesome it's, it's, for a prisoner. Yeah. Good for you, man. And he hated it. They probably gave him so much LSD. Yeah. Like, you know, like, they were pushing the human limits of how much could I put in this guy's body. Right, right. Well, phew, God. That is quite the way to describe it, man. Um, Bulger was transferred from Atlanta to Alcatraz, um, wow. Arriving on November 2nd, 1959 as prisoner AZ-1428. He became a close friend of fellow inmate Clarence Carnes, a.k.a. the Choctaw Kid. In November 1962, he was transferred to Leavenworth Federal Ten- Penitentiary and in 1963 to Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary. Dude, this guy's hit every single like famous prison. That's what I'm saying. Dude, Atlanta, Mad yeah. Famous, Alcatraz. Le- Why was he in the federal system Is was it the truck hijacking and I would they like brought tr- it across straight line, state lines? Yeah, yeah, I would assume I would assume that. But dude, like he just needed to touch full some prison and he's he had to try like the, the quadfecta, if you will. Yeah, and I don't think it was because of bad behavior. I think they literally were just overcrowded at the time. 
That's insane. That is insane, man. Um, and then Bolger's third petition for parole in 1965 was granted after he had served nine years in prison. He would not be arrested again, let alone spend a j- day in jail for another 46 years. Okay. He had a good streak, man. <laughs> he was doing crime literally that entire time. Yes. Like yes. in way more than he was before. But dude, I'm contributing the acid to some of this behavior. I don't think it helped at all. Yeah. He also might've been saying that because he probably didn't get interviewed until he got eventually caught. And then he was probably like trying to save his ass. Maybe true. I don't know. But if the whole acid thing is a, a true statement, then that definitely attributes to his behavior after it. I mean, it has to be, he's already extremely fucked up. And True. they're giving him hallucinogenic drugs that open up parts of his brain that he didn't have before. And he probably didn't want opened. Yeah. Yeah. Because if you're a criminal at 14, I can just imagine what else is going on in that Ugh. left or right lobe yeah. that you got there. Can you pass the yellow tail? Yeah, I can. All right. First glass is down. Um, this guy, I think, has been arrested a total of five times already. And I had about seven sips in there. So I am refilling. Uno momento, por favor. How's your glass doing? Uh, I'm I'm putting a diaper on it. Okay. And baby in it a little bit, but we'll, right. we'll get there. We got plenty. So I guess we don't have a lot of arrests, but I think there's a lot of murders coming up. Okay. The next headline, the Colleen Mullen War. After his release, Bolger worked as a janitor and construction worker before becoming a bookmaker and loan shark under Donald Colleen, the leader of the dominant mob, the Colleens, for over 20 years in South Boston. The Colleens were led by three brothers, Donnie, Kenny, and Eddie, along with Billy O'Sullivan sorry, and Jack Curran. Their base was the Transit Cafe in Southie, which would later become Whitey's Triple O's. In 1971, Colleen's younger brother, Kenny, allegedly shot Michael Mickey Dwyer, a member of the rival Mullen gang, in the arm. Wow. Is this a... Rival gang's two sips. Oof, okay. Hmm. Question. It's rich. Yes. Is this an Irish-Italian mob, or is this just pure Irish? I've th- never heard of these two last names. It sounds a little Italian, and then you have O'Sullivan or what O-something. So we have Billy O'Sullivan yeah. and K- Kenny Colleen, who killed Michael Dwyer. So Dwyer's pretty Irish. Colleen is not Irish. Colleen's like Spanish. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I don't—I I think maybe we'll find out. Okay. Let's see what we got. Okay. Um— <laughs> Colleen's younger brother Kenny allegedly shot Michael Dwyer again, a member of the rival Mullen gang in the arm, and bit off part of his nose during a brawl at the Transit Cafe. Love that. That's Early amazing. Mike Tyson. That's Mike Tyson before Mike Tyson. You got to appreciate the ferociousness of that. Dude, that's that is like amazing. somebody's main portion of their face. Yeah. No, biting off a nose. And dude, the nose is tough, yeah. man. That would take really strong teeth. Dude, that's pretty much impossible. His enamel, goddamn! Oh, bravo! I wish I could cl- hat five. His dentist must be proud. Glass, to man. be honest with you, his dentist is like, I helped with this. Yeah, his dentist was very proud of him that day. Man, that that's I mean that's just pure cartilage and skin. Mm-hmm. It's not an ear like Mike Tyson's ear thing. It's on the side. The ear's not that thick, but like a nose. Think about the adrenaline that oh, he had just man. biting the shit out of someone's nose. What do you do with it after? Let's find out. Um, it doesn't say. <laughs> but 
A gang war soon resulted, leading to a string of killings throughout Boston and the surrounding suburbs. The Colleens quickly found themselves outgunned and outmaneuvered by the younger Mullins. It was during the Colleen-Mullen War that Bulger set out to commit what Kevin Weeks describes as his first murder of Paul McGongle. Cheers, sip. That's a murder. All right. First murder. Boom, boom. In their own words, in the words of Kevin Weeks, he states, although McCongle never did anything, he kept on stirring everything up with his mouth. So Jimmy decided to kill him. Jimmy shot him right between the eyes. Only it wasn't Polly. It was Donald. Where did, what? I'm confused. Jimmy drove straight to his mentor, Billy O'Sullivan's house on Sabin Hill Avenue in Total Sullivan. I shot the wrong one. I shot Donald. Oh, that's the brother. <laughs> <laughs> Billy said, don't worry about it. He wasn't healthy anyway. He smoked. He would have gotten lung cancer. Dude, he shot. His first murder was a complete mistake. Yeah, it was a fluke. That's hilarious. He's getting caught. All, this guy's not that good of a criminal. I mean, he was like served half of his beginning of life in jail. Gets he gets caught. caught a lot. Dude, you're a shitty criminal if you spend that much time in jail. And then he shoots the wrong guy. Yeah. And all that time spent in jail was before the age of 30. Yeah. Like, before the age of 20, I can't calculate it, but... If you're going to be notorious, get fucking better at this shit. Yeah. <laughs> like... Yo, that needs to be written in, like, the front of a book. Like, before... If you want to be notorious, get better at this Dude, shit. Dude, like, you're a career cr- criminal. Yeah. If this was a job, you already got fired so many times. So many times. You're bad, man. Well, the fact that his mentor, O'Sullivan... Said, uh, don't worry about it. He smoked. He would have gotten lung cancer. Quite the assumption. I was just going to say. Quite that's the assumption a, there. I don't know, man. <laughs> that's going out on a limb saying somebody's going to get cancer. So good thing you killed him. Yeah. Yeah. I guess he saved a life in O'Sullivan's eyes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we'll go with that. According to former Mullen boss, Patrick Nee, McCongle, certain O'Sullivan was responsible, ambushed and murdered O'Sullivan. Bulger... Realizing he was on the losing side, secretly approached Howie Winter, leader of the Winter Hill Gang, and claimed he could end the war by murdering the leaders of the Colleen Gang. Shortly thereafter, on May 13, 1972, Donald Colleen was gunned down outside of his home in the suburb of Framingham. He flopped. He flopped. He indeed did. Need disputes this, claiming that Colleen was murdered by Mullen Gang enforcers James Mantville and Tommy King, not Bulger. Um... I'm going to go ahead and take a sip. Yeah. Sounded like he murdered him. Not James or Tom. Dude, this should be like a, this should be something if you flop. That's bad. That's like worse than becoming an informant. I mean, at least you're sparing a guy's life. You literally set up his murder and he helped you out. Mm Mm-hmm. This guy's shit, man. Yeah, he's shit. He's absolute dog shit. Bulger and the Colleens fled the city, fearing they would be next. Knee arranged for the dispute to be meditated, mediated, mediated, mediated. wow, mediated by Winter and the Patricia, I definitely mispronounced that, uh, crime family, uh, capo Joseph Russo. In a sit-down at Chandler's nightclub in the South End, the Mullins were represented by Knee and King and the Colleens by Bulger. The two gangs joined forces with Winter as overall boss. Knee's recounting is contradicted by Winter. I never knew Bulger before that. He knew I was friendly with the Mullins gang. He asked if I would intercede. I said, are you serious about this? I don't want to intercede if you're not going to abide by it. He said he would. Nobody talked fault. Deep down, Whitey knew that he couldn't take over for the Colleens without cutting the Mullins in on their bookmaking and loan sharking. The meeting lasted for six hours. It was business. 
Six hour meeting. I literally cannot think of anything worse than a six hour meeting. That's almost a full work day. I can't stand a full work day, let alone a six hour just meeting of the same exact people doing the same thing. With people that could shoot you yeah. at literally oh, any moment. Dude. If you don't say the right thing. Yeah, that'd be the most inte- Like, these are all extraordinarily dangerous people, and you're in the room with them for six hours walking on eggshells. I always say, you know, man, if I could go back in time, it'd be cool to be a mobster, right? The the movies make them look cool. Dude, I'd be sweating out of my fucking suit every day. I don't understand how these people maintain this clip of intensity. They're just crazy, man. It's it's unbelievable. It's just like pure stressful situations 24 7 you don't get away from it it's not a job no, no you never get away from it's it. your life you get shot in your sleep whenever yeah. you're sleeping Fuck especially man. back in like the 20s and 30s when the security wasn't good oh my god oh yeah exactly yeah. dude your like, house could just get busted in bang bang you're dead bye bang bang, bang you're dead <laughs> jesus <laughs> um the balance of the meeting was spent forming an alliance Everything was split down the middle. All the horses, dogs, bookmaking, and loan sharking were now going to be under our mutual control. This was the beginning of our relationship. Whitey and I were now partners. Ryan's poing up again. There we go. Soon after, Donald Colleen's sole surviving brother, Kenneth Colleen, was jogging in the City Point neighborhood of Boston. Bulger's voice called him over to a car and said, It's over. You're out of business. No more warnings. Kenneth would later testify at the trial of disgraced FBI agent John Connolly that Winter Hill enforcers Stephen Flemmy and John Monterano were in the car with Bolger. What a name, Flemmy. Stephen Flemmy, and I got a picture of him too. Check this out. What, what's the year? Look at that double chin right there. Oh, yeah. That's a, that guy looks like a catcher's mitt. He's an Italian as fuck. Yeah. That's what he is. What's the year on this? Right um, now, this situation? So we're going into the, win- the formation of the Winter Hill Gang. Just Correct. happened. So now it says after the 1972 1972. So, so somebody is jogging in 1972. You know how fucking weird that is to people in 1972? Yeah. Some guy on. just running yeah. around? They didn't prioritize fitness back then. And like jogging. No one knew what that was. No. <laughs> like nobody jogs. What if he's Some... doing yoga? That'd oh. be, he'd be called, a, called a gay boy by the entire oh, dude, gang. Dude, he'd have a knife in his neck while he's doing <laughs> downward dog. <laughs> what are these movements you're doing? <laughs> what are these movements? Jesus. All right. After the 1972 truce, Bolger and the Mullins were in control of South Boston's criminal underworld. FBI Special Agent Condon noted in his log in September of 1973 that Bulger and Nee had been heavily shaking down the neighborhood's bookmakers and loan sharks. Over the years that followed, Bulger began to remove opposition by persuading Winter to sanction the killings of those who stepped out of line. In a 2004 interview, Winter recalled that the highly intelligent Bulger, I don't know how smart he is. I was going to say, I, don't, I wouldn't use that word to describe him. No, not at all. But he said that he could teach the devil tricks. That's how smart he was. Okay. Criminally smart. But he got... I don't know. I'm not buying that one. I'm not buying that either. And during this era, Bulger's victims included Mullen Gang veterans, McCongle, King, and Spike O'Toole. We drink to that. More murders. McCongle. What a name. Ooh. Awesome. According to Kevin Weeks, as a criminal, he made a point of only preying upon criminals. All right. It's only killing bad guys. Yeah, it's like a Robin Hood situation, except not at all. Right. <laughs> but like, it's a little bit more justifiable, I guess. Like, hey, you're a bad guy, but you're also taking bad guys out of the world, which is good. It's a good That's thing. That's good. That's good. It's civil service. 
And when things couldn't be worked out due to his satisfaction, to his satisfaction with these people, after all the other options had been explored, he wouldn't hesitate to use violence. Tommy King in 1975 was one example. Tommy's problems began when he and Jimmy had worked in Triple O's, the bar that we mentioned previously that Bulger owned in 1971. Tommy, who was uh, a Mullins, made a fist, and Jimmy saw it. A week later, Tommy was dead. He made, he a, fist. made a fist. He made a fist, and now he's dead. Unbelievable. A little too much, little too much like pride. and Yeah. This guy was a fucking psycho. Yeah, these are a lot of roles. I wouldn't want to be in this game. There's too many roles. Yeah, there are a lot Can't of roles. Can you make a fist? No, can't make what a fist. What if I'm like angry at somebody else and I'm like, hey, get off my lawn? Yeah, but if it was done like kind of in his direction, you're dead by Wednesday. Oh, man, that's a lot. Yeah, that's a lot. Um, later that same night, never mind, Tommy's second and last mistake had been getting into the car with Jimmy, Stevie, and Johnny Monterano. Later that same night, Jimmy killed Buddy Leonard, cheers, and left him in Tommy's car on Pill Sudsky Way in the old colony projects to confuse the authorities. We cheers to that. That is another murder. I would love to know the, how, like, actually how they killed him in that. Anytime I hear of, like, mobster murder in cars, I just go back to Goodfellas and the ice pick in the back of the mm-hmm. head. Yeah, just right through the chair. It, dude, It's yeah. that is, like... A great way to murder somebody, yeah. Like from a mobster perspective, keeps them quiet. Yep, they never know what hit them. Mor- Morty Goldman or Mort Goldman, yeah, yeah. yeah with, the, with the commercials where he's jumping, Morty's wigs, the <laughs> they never come off. I'm gonna pay you, Jimmy. I'm gonna pay <laughs> you, Jimmy. I need my money. I need my money, Jimmy. <laughs> Jesus, dude. Speaking of psychos, De Niro in that movie, and we are gonna profile who he played in that movie. By the way, eventually, Jimmy Burke. Okay. But oh, that's it. I'm, I'm it's excited. It's going to be a good one. Yeah. It's going to be a really I'm good one. For that he one. was a maniac that Love night. it. Um, in 1979, Winter was arrested along with many members of his inner circle on charges of fixing horse races. Bulger and Flemmy were left out of the indictments. They stepped into the vacuum and took over leadership of the gang. They transferred its headquarters to the Lancaster Street Garage in Boston near the Boston Garden in the West End. Imagine you are a mobster has killed many people done extortions robberies drug trafficking the whole nine yards and you you get arrested for fixing horse races yeah man that's, that's what they pinch you on exactly like this go, kind of just goes back to the whole theme of like this guy isn't a good criminal how like dude it's horse racing well this was good for him because he took over the gang this yeah was just I, some random guy in the, i get that but like it's just these people aren't that good no they're not that good so far, they have not been good at all. Um, FBI informant. That's the next line. FBI no informant. Fuck. Yeah. All right. So I got I got like a sip left. I'm gonna take. What's what's the rule? Refresh. That's my... half. That's half the glass right there. I didn't realize it was gonna come oh. this fast. Yeah, man. This right, is well, this guy's. Uh, this guy's hurting my liver. Yeah. Really bad. Mm. That's gone. Can you pass me the the tail of yellow, sir? Yeah. Having no AC in here is, uh, is kind of a bummer. It's a little steamy. Yeah, swamp ass would be an understatement. <laughs> All right, refill, refill, refill. Got this here. Let me take another quick sip. Mm-hmm. My mother would be very disappointed in the amount of wine that I'm drinking on a Wednesday. Yeah, 
I've heard that line a couple times. <laughs> in 1971, the FBI approached Bolger and attempted to recruit him as an informant as part of their effort against the the Petra- I'm butchering this name Petrarchia. It's very Italian. Yeah. FBI Special Agent Dennis Condon, who we mentioned earlier, was assigned to make the pitch. However, Condon failed to win Bolger's trust. Three years later, Bolger partnered with Flemmy, an Italian-American mobster who had been an FBI informant since 1965. You fucking rat. Although it is documented that Bolger soon followed Flemmy's example, exactly how and why continues to be debated. Special Agent John Connolly frequently boasted to his fellow agents about how he had recruited Bolger at a late-night meeting at a Wollaston Beach at Wollaston Beach inside an FBI-issued car. Connolly allegedly said that the Bureau can help in Bolger's feud with the Petrarchia underboss under Gennaro Angulo. Angulo. After listening to the pitch, Bolger is said to have responded, All right, if they want to play checkers, we'll play chess. Fuck them. All right. What a line. What a line. Yeah, but the, he doesn't know how to play chess. <laughs> no. <laughs> Dude, he doesn't know how to play Candyland. Yeah, like like real life chess. He doesn't. He doesn't. Yeah. He can't. Do you know what game that. I was thinking about the other day? That was really fun back in the day. What? Mancala. Do you ever play Mancala? Oh, I'm not. Man, I'm was, not. It was like the little circles with the rocks, and I, you had to like I don't remember how to play. <laughs> but... Dude, there's this really new. Uh, there's this new game called Catan. I don't mm. know if you've ever heard of that. I don't think I have. Yeah, play that. Free ad. Catan. Okay. On, on your phone? Just, you can play it? No, it's a board game. Oh, okay. But cool. Free ad for Catan. It's oh, awesome. there we go. Free. I thought yeah. you were saying free app and you were just misspeaking and no, no, I didn't no. want to correct you. No. I'm Please. too nice. Please. Um, yeah, free ad, Catan. Catan. Throw us some there money or something. <laughs> Please. Uh, Weeks considers it more likely that Flemmy had betrayed him to the FBI, given the choice to supply information to the FBI or return to prison. In 1997, shortly after the Boston Globe disclosed that Bulger and Flemmy had been informants, Weeks met with Connolly, who showed him a photocopy of Bulger's FBI informant file. Wow. Who is the fucking ballsy dude at the Globe that infiltrated Whitey Bulger's Oh, dude, I think we're going to learn about him a little bit. Wow. uh, The stones on that guy. dude. He, uh, I think he had a little danger to his life about that. Yeah, as, I mean, dude, honestly, I hope we'll see. honestly, like, when I view the Boston Globe, it's, like, hardcore, blue-collar, just get the shit done. Dude, they're hustlers. Did yeah. you see Spotlight? Yeah, man, it's an incredible film. Them breaking that story yep. was unbelievable. That, yep. movie, that is a great movie. It One is. best picture. It, it really is. It really is, but... Yeah, Boston Globe. Good yeah. job, guys. You got big stones, man. Bob Ryan, one of the best sports porters in the world, in my opinion. Um, shortly after the Boston Globe disclosed that they were informants, Weeks met with Connolly, who showed him a photocopy of Bulger's FBI informant file. In order to explain Bulger and Flemmy's status as informants, Connolly said the mafia was going against Jimmy and Stevie. So Jimmy and Stevie went against them. In a 2011 interview, Flemmy recalled, me and Whitey gave the feds shit, and they gave us gold. Hmm. Awesome. According to Weeks, not awesome. They're fucking rats, but that's a cool yeah. quote. <laughs> According to Weeks, Connolly kept telling me that 90% of the information in the files came from Stevie. But Connolly told me he had put Jimmy's name on the files to keep his file active. As long as Jimmy was an active informant, Connolly said, he could justify meeting with Jimmy and giving him valuable information. Even after he retired, Connolly still had friends in the FBI, and he and Jimmy kept meeting to let each other know what was going on. I could see that a lot of the reports were not just going against the Italians. 
there were more and more names of Polish and Irish guys, of people we had done business with, of friends of mine. I would see over and over again that some of these people had been arrested for crimes that were mentioned in these reports. It had been bullshit when Connolly told me that the files hadn't been disseminated, that they had been for his own personal use. If there was some investigation going on and his supervisor said, let me take a look at that, what was Connolly going to do? He had to give it up. And he obviously had, yo, this Connolly guy fucking sucks. Yeah, man. This, he is whack. Yeah. He's in cahoots with the mob. He, he truly is. I, I don't see like a, uh, I don't see a good ending for him. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Not at all. That might be a little foreshadowing there. We'll see. Yeah. Um, FBI agent John Morris was put in charge of the organized crime squad at the Bureau's Boston field office in December 1977. Sounds like what Matt Damon did in The Departed a little bit. The Departed. Uh, the Departed. Although he was basically on Nicholson. He was on Nicholson's side the whole time. Yeah, but he didn't even know that he was getting two-timed. He was an asshole in that, too. Dude. He, I'm, I, He's a, I t- I'll you should you hate him. Yeah, yeah. I, I will tell you that, like, from a movie perspective, I don't think I've felt so much joy within any other movie than when Matt Damon gets shot in the head by Mark Wahlberg. Mac, um, that hey, was guy, this Mark Wahlberg. That was I'm great. Shoot you in the head. Also, hey. <laughs> also smart of him before uh, to wear the beanie. Yeah, to wear the shit on his shoes. Definitely Dude, never got oh, caught. He's a cop, man. He knows how to kill people. Oh yeah. But like my, he just like shoots him. There's blood everywhere he's in the hallway like i would have let him come in and done something there so at least you get some time at least you have a couple hours before someone finds him this guy's in the hallway with his brain splattered on the door that little lady walking the dog gonna find him in 20 minutes when true her, when her little dog's done true. taking the that dog poop. if you remember when he walked through the hall oh the dog, i love it the dog doesn't fuck with him. Yeah. The dog no, no, no. is like well, skittish. Well, dude, the lady doesn't let the dog yeah. fuck with him. He, she's like, I know this guy's a fucking prick. Mm-hmm. Done. Dude, that is perfect Scorsese. It is. Just subtle, subtle, subtle. Yes. Thing. And did you, I, I was reading some trivia on that. Um, I think everyone in that besides Jack Nicholson gets shot right between the eyes. And there's always really? an X over their head. If You like, you were telling me that. Yeah, yep. there's like something going on there. Just Scorsese, man. Love being him. A Genius. Um, where were we? In 1995, Bulger and Fleming were indicted on racketeering charges. Cheers. Arrested. Yeah, for sure. Along with two Boston mafiosi, Frank Salemi and Bobby DeLuca. Let me take a sip. Mm-hmm. During the discovery phase, Salemi and DeLuca were listening to a tape from a roving bug, which is normally authorized when the FBI has no advanced knowledge of where criminal activity will take place. They overheard two of the agents who were listening in on the bug mention that they should have told one of their informants to give a list of questions to the other wise guys. When their lawyer, Tony Cardinale, learned about this, he realized that the FBI had lied about the basis for the bug in order to protect an informant. Smart. Suspecting that this was not the first time that this had happened, Cardinale sought to force prosecutors to reveal the identities of any informants used in connection with the case. Cardinale's my man. That's a smart guy right there. Federal Judge Mark L. Wolf granted Cardinale's motion on May 22nd, 1997. On June 3rd, Paul E. Coffey, the head of the Organized Crime and Racketeering Section of the Justice Department, gave a sworn statement admitting that Bulger had been an FBI informant, you cocksucker. Coffey stated (laughs) that since Bulger was accused of leading a criminal, criminal enterprise while working as an informant, and was also now a fugitive, he had forfeited any reasonable, ex- any reasonable expectation that his identity would be protected. 
On September 5, 2006, federal judge Reginald C. Lindsay ruled that the mishandling of Bulger and Flemmy caused the 1984 murder of informant John McIntyre, murder, awarding his family $3.1 million in damages. What is, what's the minimum you would take to be okay with a murder of a relative or very close friend? Oof. That's a, I know it's a tough question, but it has to be asked. Dude, that's hard. That is hard. Gun, gun to my head, monetary amount, $5 million. I was going to say $5 million too. Yeah. To like fully be like... It depends, it depends on who it is. Yeah. Right? Like... Father, no. That, that motherfucker's dying. Yeah, I just... I'm, yeah. I'm getting whoever did that. Oh, for sure. Or trying to. Yeah. There's like immediate family, there's no amount of money. Yeah. Like for me, there's no amount of money. However... Dude, that's that's a tough question. That's a tough question. That's very moral. That's question. I take back on. all. I take back that. Answer. <laughs> <laughs> Lindsay stated that the FBI failed to properly supervise Connolly, convicted and jailed in 2002. Connolly, FBI agent, scumbag, convicted and jailed in 2002, and stuck its head in the sand regarding numerous allegations that Bulger and Flemmy were involved in drug trafficking, murder, and Jeez. other crimes for decades. Now we move to Goodfellas in South Boston. So we're going back here. Um, consolidating power. In February of 1979, federal prosecutors indicted numerous members of the Winter Hill Gang, including boss Howie Winter, for fixing horse races. Bulger and Flemmy were originally going to be in part of this indictment, but Connolly and Morris were able to persuade prosecutor Jeremiah T. O'Sullivan to drop the charges against them at the last minute. Bulger and Flemmy were instead named as unindicted co-conspirators. Oh, man. This wine has gotten to me. Bulger and Flemmy then took over the remnants of the Winter Hill Gang and used their status as informants to eliminate competition. The information they supplied to the FBI in subsequent years was responsible for the imprisonment of several of Bulger's associates whom Bulger viewed as threats. However, the main victim of their relationship with the federal government was the Petrarchia family, who I cannot fucking pronounce, and I'm definitely doing it wrong, and they've been mentioned more times it's than right. I'd like to we'll, be. We'll figure it out. <laughs> Which was based in end. Boston's North End and in Federal Hill, Providence, Rhode Island. After the 1986 RICO indictment of Angulio and his associates, the Petrarchia family, goddammit, Boston's operations were in shambles. Bulger and Flemmy stepped into the ensuing vacuum to take control of organized crime in the area. Basically, they were informants who used their power to fuck everyone and then got control of everything. Yeah. I like the, consolid- the mergers and acquisitions, though. Boston has a lot of uh, consolidations, if you will. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. At least they're smart about that. They are smart about that. They're also huge scumbags for just literally ratting on everyone and taking control of everything. Yeah, dude. Like This is, a, this is probably one of like the scummiest— yeah. Oh, by the way, we are going to have um, the most scummy award at the end of the episode, yeah. which we will try to turn into. I think a I already tradition. have mine. I don't even. I think I could just oh, end it here. I, I, no, I think you should wait. Okay. I think, I think we got a lot more juicy stuff. All right. The murder of Louis Latif in 1980. Bulger was approached in South Boston's Triple O Saloon by Louis Latif, Louis Louis, whatever, a neighborhood bookmaker. Weeks, a bouncer at the establishment, said he wasn't a big guy, maybe 5'7 and 185 pounds. Of Arab descent, he had a mustache like Saddam Hussein. That's kind of racist. That night, as always, <laughs> he was talking in an obnoxious, loud voice. Even when there were 400 people in the bar, you always knew Louis was there. Latif had been stealing from his partners in the bookmaking operation and using the money to traffic cocaine. 
and had not only refused to pay Bulger a cut of his, a cut of his drug profits, but committed two murders without Bulger's permission. Mm. Latif told an outraged Bulger he was also going to kill his partner, Joe the Barber, whom he accused of stealing money from the bookmaking operation. Bulger refused to sanction this, but Latif vowed to proceed. Bulger replied, you stepped over the line. You're no longer just a bookmaker. Latif responded that as Bulger was his friend, he had nothing to worry about. Bulger coldly responded, we're not friends anymore, Louis. That is when the blood rushes out of your face. You run out of there. You skip town. You're a ghost. Because that line gets said to you by this guy, Bulger, you are so dead. Yeah, that's that's an awkward thing to do, too, as well. Like... I've I've never had to do that. Have you ever had to like break up with a friend? No, I've never broken up with a friend. I, I haven't. Um, never broken up with a girlfriend either. It's a story for another time. Okay, but <laughs> um, no, I've never. I, it's usually just like you guys stop talking. You know. Yeah, but like it's I wonder like a spur if, of the moment thing. I wonder how that goes. Like, do you sit them down and say like it's not you, it's me, or like that's probably how I would approach it because uh, I'm soft. Okay. And uh, would like, tend to deflect blame. Gotcha. Or avoid confrontation. Yes. That too. That too. At all costs. Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. Yep. <laughs> At the time... We, I'm drunk. Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty drunk yep. too. I'm also sweating where there's no AC in here. Yeah. We, uh, we live in Hoboken, New Jersey where AC is crucial in the summer because it is muggy as piss out. Yeah, you should give them our address too. Yeah. And social um, security. <laughs> At the time, Weeks was about to get married, and shortly before the wedding, informed Bulger that he was having difficulty finding a seat for Latif at the reception. <laughs> Don't worry about it, Bulger responded. He probably won't show. Oh, God. Louis had always been a major moneymaker for Jimmy, and now he wanted to kill a friend of Jimmy. There was no way that would be allowed. Shortly after that, a week or so before my wedding, Louis was found stuffed into a garbage bag in the trunk of his car, which had been dumped in the south end. Mm. He had been stabbed with an ice pick and shot. ice pick. You called it. Ice pick. Bing, bing, bing. Murder. Yep. Sip. Mm -hmm. You got it. Probably big on the ice pick. Probably made no noise. Yeah, Depending man, on where he was stabbed. But ice picks, ice picks can do it. They're sharp. Do it. Very sharp. He was color-coordinated, Jimmy told me. He was wearing green underwear and was in a green garbage wow. bag. Dude, yeah, but he's full of quotes. Yeah. But, but talk about an obsolete object now. Ice picks? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're gone. They, the ice machines just make cubed ice separately by themselves. That now. they do. I feel like, you know, especially where I went to school in upstate New York, yeah. they had those really thick ones hanging from the roof. And you actually could, like, if you wanted to grab them and just, like, use it real quick. Wait, they had, like, visible ice picks? Well, so you know when, like, shit's dripping off, but it's a lot of snow, but it freezes in the middle of the oh, night? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, like, but it's, like, the thick ones, like, yeah. with the sharp Icicles. Ends. Icicles. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, like, I feel like you could use that as an ice pick replacement, kind of. Kind of. Not really. Yeah. I was also getting confused as to what an ice pick was. Yeah, you were thinking icicles from, the whole time. Not from the East Coast. Gotcha. Um, I am, like I said, I'm, like I said before the episode, not, not the smartest cookie in the, in the jar. But uh, I'm also, this wine is, this wine's getting to me a little bit. It's all right. According to Kevin Weeks, strangely enough, Jimmy told me, Louis's last words were a lie. Apparently, Louis had insisted that he come by himself and that nobody, nobody had driven him over. It was hard to figure out why Louis lied to Jimmy that night. If he told Jimmy that someone had driven him, he might have gotten a pass. But it wouldn't have lasted long since Jimmy had no intention of letting Louis run wild. Bye-bye, Louis. Yeah. Halloran and Donahue murders. 
and more murders. In 1982, a South Boston cocaine dealer named Edward Brian Halloran, known on the streets as Balloonhead, approached the FBI and stated that he had witnessed Bulger and Fleming murdering Latif. How do you get the nickname? I was just going to ask. That's because a phenomenal. Can you nickname. please start calling me that? Yeah, that that like, is an amazing name. Dude, you need some some major spherical head. His head must have been ginormous. Yeah. And like perfectly proportioned. Well, too. you know how you know those heads that are like skinny in the chin and then just get like oh, yeah. super wide at the skull. Yes, that's that's probably what he was like rocking. the uh, like those characters in Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> yes, you know what I mean. Yeah, like yeah, the, yeah. the twins with yes. the humongous heads. That's yes. what I picture. Mm-hmm. Balloon head. Balloon head. Edward Halloran. Meanwhile, Connolly kept Bulger and Fleming closely briefed on what Halloran was saying to the FBI, specifically his knowledge of their participation along with their younger associate James Gentleman Jim Mulvey in the the murder of Tulsa, Oklahoma businessman Roger Wheeler. Connolly reported that Halloran was shopping this information to the FBI for a chance for him and his family to be placed in the witness protection program. Soon after, on May 11, 1982, Bulger... Fleming and Weeks were tipped off that Halloran had returned to South Boston. Oh, boy. He's back. He's back, and that was a bad decision. Yeah. That was a really bad decision. After arriving at the scene, Weeks staked out Anthony's Pier 4 restaurant where Halloran was dining. Michael Donahue, a friend of Halloran's from Dorchester. Dorchester. Uh, Dorchester. (laughs) Incidentally ran into him at the restaurant. In a decision that would prove costly to him, Donahue offered Halloran a ride home. But, man... But you're you're out of it. You know what I mean? Like you're gone. You're out of the, this whole circle. Your life is fine now. Don't go back, dude. How about the guy who just like offered the guy a ride home and now he's dead? I, I just don't feel bad for for anyone involved. <laughs> I don't feel bad for him. Honestly, that's your own fault. Yeah, yeah. I mean, everyone in this story is a huge scumbag. Yeah, but like a lot of the people I I have sympathy for, and then others I don't. This guy, I do not. No. As Donahue and Halloran drove out of the parking lot, Weeks signaled Bulger by stating, the balloon is in the air. (laughs) That's a good good joke. Over a walkie-talkie. Bulger drove up with a masked man armed with a silenced Mac-10. Bulger himself carried a 30 cal carbine. A disguised Bulger and and the other shooter open-fired and sprayed Halloran and Donahue's car with bullets. That is another sip. That is a murder. Donahue was shot in the head and killed instantly. Mm. Innocent guy. Just wanted to give his friend a ride home and uh, proceeds to get shot in the head. Um, wrong I think place, the moral, wrong time. The moral of the story is be an asshole, don't be nice, don't offer friends rides. Spe- yeah. Speaking of which, sat- Saturday morning, you-, you, got my, you got my ride, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay, yep. cool. We're good. Okay. <laughs> Donahue uh, was shot in the head. Halloran lived long enough to identify his attacker as James Flynn, a Winter Hill associate who was later tried and acquitted. Okay, acquitted. Flynn remained the prime suspect until 1999 when Weeks agreed to cooperate with investigators and identified Bulger as one of the shooters. Everyone involved is cooperating. Everyone. No one. No loyalty. No one sticks to the mob code. Well, dude, this is like, this isn't true Sicilian family rooted. This is Irish. This is like this like this is just making the Irish mob just look like a bunch of pussies. I think essentially when it comes down cuz the the Sicilians really invented the mafia, the Cosa Nostra. Yeah. I feel like the Irish were just like thugs with gangs, not necessarily the mob, the mafia, you know? They called themselves the mob. Yeah. It sounds like they were just a bunch of idiots 
in a gang like to kill committing people. crimes. Yeah, committing crimes. Now, question for you: Do Italian people in Boston gangs have a Boston accent? Because there is no way that's a that good question. I could picture a fat Italian dude with a cigar <laughs> and a whiskey saying Dorchester. Dorchester. No, I can't see it either, man. Um, Stephen Fleming is obviously super Italian by the way he looked and his name. Yeah. Um, I feel like, dude, if you're raised in an area, no matter what you are, you could potentially still pick up an accent. Oh, for sure. Especially it just in the fit. 60s and 70s. Yeah, it just does not fit that. Yeah. Nowadays, accents, they're, I, it's really hard to pick up an accent, I feel like, these days. Um, just be Just based on... New people in the area. The areas are much more varied and mixed now. Yeah. A lot of um, transplants. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but that would be pretty funny. Just like a old like Italian guy sitting in yeah, a Yeah, like, no way, dude. No nah. way he's saying, like, Southie and you never better show your face in Quincy again. Like, <laughs> it's not happening. Um, where the fuck was I? Okay. Um, Flemmy had, has identified the second shooter as James Mulvey who has denied the allegation and has yet to be charged. All right. Donahue was survived by his wife and three sons. God damn it. He was so innocent. His family and Hallorens eventually filed a civil lawsuit against the U.S. government after learning that Connolly had informed Bulger of Halloran's uh, informant status. Both families were awarded several million dollars in damages. However, the verdict was overturned on appeal due to the late filing of the claims. Oh, here's a million dollars. Oh, I'm sorry, your lawyer filed it a day late. Sorry, no more millions of dollars. Yeah, now you have a dead what husband bullshit and father. technicality. Yeah, you're, not only is your father and husband dead, you had a million dollars, now you don't have it anymore. Now you have nothing. Talk about just a kick in the ass after getting punched in the face, huh? Yes, and Whitey Bulger's dad still has one arm. Dude, Whitey Bulger's still alive. No, I know. What a... Thomas Donahue, who was eight years old when his father was murdered, has become a spokesman, spokesman for the families of those allegedly murdered by the Winter Hill Gang. There is a, there's a spokesperson for someone who has gotten murdered by this gang. There were so many murders by this gang that there's like a group. Yeah, is that still happening t- today? Because like at, at some point in your life, you just got to let it go. So the, the article is um, titled, A Voice for Those Silenced in a Mobster's Reign, July 15, 2011. I think it's safe to say it's still going on. Dude, just let it go. Like, man, I but- understand. I understand, like, that's extra- extraordinarily cynical, but, like. This gang is too, no longer. It's, yeah, it, 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 like, they're not continually affecting people right now. The mobs, like, the, the gang is done. Just let it go. Like, let's move on. True, true. Peak years. Oh my god, we're not even at the fucking peak years yet. That's not peak. They haven't peaked. They have not peaked yet. Jesus. Sounds like me in seventh grade. <laughs> throughout the 1980s, Bulger, Fleming, and Weeks ran extortion throughout eastern Massachusetts. Extortion, loan sharking, bookmaking, truck hijackings, back to the hijackings of trucks, and arms trafficking. State and federal agencies were repeatedly stymied in their attempts to build cases against Bulger and his inner inner circle. This was caused by several factors. Among them was the trio's paranoid fear of wiretaps and policy of never discussing their business over the telephone or in the car. Other reasons were South Boston's code of silence and corruption within the Boston Police Department, the Massachusetts State Police, and the Federal Bureau of Investigation. They had everyone on the dime. Yep. 
Uh, although FBI agent John Connolly is Bulger's most infamous source inside law enforcement, Kevin Weeks has stated that Massachusetts State Police Lieutenant Richard J. Schneiderhan had, was valued far more highly. According to Weeks, this is because Schneiderhan was the crew's only source inside the Massachusetts State Police Department. All you need is one, man. Especially one at the top, too. Yeah. Jesus. Um, this one is titled Extortion of Drug Dealers. All right. We're moving into drugs now. Drugs were nice in the 80s. They, they were popular. A lot of money to be had. A lot of money to be had. But, dude, like, most of the, like, that's the Coke boom, and that comes from one person. Yeah, and you know who likes Coke? White people. White people. You know what Boston has? Coke. A lot of white people. The most. Jesus Christ. Fun, fun city, though. During the mid-1980s, Bulger began to summon drug dealers from in and around Boston to his headquarters, flanked by Kevin Weeks and Stephen Flemmy. Bulger would inform each dealer that he had been offered a substantial sum in return for that dealer's assassination. He would then demand a large cash payment as the price of not killing them. Wow. That's pretty cool. Don't deal drugs in South Boston or you will have to pay or get killed. It's like protection. Dude, that that is like, that's a good move though. That's... You, Criminally very smart. Yeah, it, it really is. Yeah. Like, you pay me, and you're not going to die. It's like the Ray Liotta line. Fuck yeah. you, pay me. In yeah. Goodfellas. Literally. I'm going to kill you, or pay me. Um, okay. he, eventually, however, the massive profits of drugs proved irresistible. According to Weeks, Jimmy, Stevie, and I weren't in the import business, and we weren't bringing in the marijuana or the cocaine. We are in the shakedown business. We didn't bring drugs in. We took money off the people who did. We never dealt with the street dealers, but rather with a dozen large-scale drug distributors all over the state who were bringing in the coke and marijuana and paying hundreds of thousands to Jimmy. The dealers on the street corner sold eight balls, grams, and half grams to customers for their personal use. They were supplied by the mid-level drug dealer who was selling them multiple ounces. In other words, the big imposters gave it to the major distributors who sold it to the middlemen who sold it to the street dealers. In order to get Jimmy, Stevie, and me, someone would have had to go through those four layers of insulation. Yeah, that's another good. smart move. Yeah, it's good. Another smart move. They're starting to like learn and adapt. A yeah, bit better. Yeah, yeah, I mean the fact that he wasn't arrested for forty six fucking years. That, I mean that's good. Yeah, but again, he's like creating this organization with so many layers that it's kind of hard to actually get him doing true. something. Very true. In South Boston, most of the neighborhood's cocaine and marijuana trafficking was under the control of a crew led by mobster John Shea, known as Red. Probably had red hair, didn't he? Potentially. (laughs) I'm going to say yeah. According to Weeks, Bulger briefly considered whacking Shea, but eventually decided to, you know, just extort a weekly cut of his profits. Weeks also states that Bulger enforced strict rules over the dealers who operated on his home turf. God, that is terrifying. The only people we ever put out of business were heroin dealers. Jimmy didn't allow heroin in South Boston. It was a dirty drug that users stuck in their arms, making problems with needles and later on AIDS. While people can do cocaine socially and still function, yeah. once they do heroin, they're zombies. It sounds like this is kind of the, the route to go for the opioid crisis. Yes. Just get Whitey Bulger to... Eradicate the streets of heroin. Yeah, man. Yeah. I think that's, that's, a, that's the move. Have well, everybody do cocaine and not heroin. Right. Yeah. I mean, I feel like um, everyone would get a lot more done, you know? Yeah. Honestly, just having right. nonstop energy. Yeah. 
the opioid crisis is a whole different story. I think that starts at the top of the pharmacies, but oh, a, th- a thousand percent. That's a story yeah, that's, for another. That's day. a <laughs> that is a government funded like institution. I could that's... go on for days about that. I oh, have strong me, me opinions well. on it's, that. It's absolutely it's fucking unbelievable. Bullshit. Yeah. Um, Weeks also states that Bulger strictly forbade angel dust and selling drugs to children, and that those dealers who refused to play by his rules were violently driven from the town. It's a good movie. Um, you know what angel dust is? Um. I don't. PCP. Okay. Yeah. So this guy has like some form of moral code. He's a code of ethics. He's like a street code of ethics. Yeah. Um, Which I don't respect him. I guess as a criminal, I would respect that. But as a scumbag drug dealer, I'd be like, fuck that. And I think we're about to learn something about that. In 1990, Red Shea and his associates were arrested at the end of an investigation by the DEA, the Boston Police Department, and the Massachusetts State Police. Shea quietly served a very long prison sentence and refused to admit to having paid protection money to Bulger, Fleming, and Weeks. He reportedly got in fights with other inmates who accused Bulger of being a rat. This earned Shea a legendary reputation in Boston. He was the one guy who didn't rat. That's good. Shit. Yeah, one of... uh... But he didn't know Bulger was being a rat. Yeah, true. God damn it. According to Weeks... God, this guy Weeks likes to talk a lot, huh? Of course, literally every quote has been from him. Of course, Jimmy lost money once the drug dealers were removed from the streets in the summer raid, but he always had other businesses going on. Knowing I had to build something on the side, I had concentrated on my shylocking and gambling businesses. The drug business business had been good while it lasted, but our major involvement in it was over. What is shylocking? I, I was literally just going to ask that exact same question. It sounds like it might have been from like the Jewish. Mom. I'm going to do a little. Let's uh, let's do a please, quick please, Google search. Please continue. And I'm going to take a sip of my wine, yeah. and uh, I will continue. And Shylocking, S-H-I? Mm-hmm. Okay. All one word, Shylocking. Okay. It would not be until the 1999 cooperation of a weeks. A ruthless money lender, a loan shark. Oh, so it's a loan shark. It's okay, loan shark. gotcha. So that was in Weeks' own words. That's why it wasn't. Yeah, a little, a little concern for I'm me sorry. on the Shylocking word is when you type it into Google... It is Shylocking, and then like the fourth one down is Bible, in the Bible. Gotcha. So it probably means someone who is very greedy or forces people to give yeah, them their okay. money. That's, uh, that's interesting. It would not be— Yeah, dude. It's, that's, that's, you think that's it? Yeah, yeah, it is. Shit. God damn it. It would not be until the 1999 cooperation of weeks that Bulger, by then a fugitive, was conclusively linked to the drug trade by investigators. According to an interview conducted with the Boston Globe reporters Kevin Cullen and Shelley Murphy, Kevin Weeks estimated that Whitey made about $30 million, most of it from shaking down drug dealers to let them do business on his turf. That was just from one racket. Unbelievable. Oh, okay. So that was drug trafficking. Now we're going into arms trafficking. This <laughs> During, guy has his hand in everything. He's got his hand in everything. Dude, he, I think he literally ran this city for yeah, at least a good portion of 40 it. years. Yeah. Unbelievable. During the most violent period of the Troubles, sympathy for the Provisional Irish Republican Army was very common in South Boston. The IRA. The IRA. Very Irish. Makes sense. So were efforts to raise money and smuggle weapons for the Provo's armed struggle against the British presence Boom. in Northern Ireland. That is right kind there. of fucking dope. That, that's really They cool. smuggled arms to Ireland to help the IRA. That that's is awesome. cool. That's pretty cool. Um, from the start of his involvement with the FBI, Whitey Bulger insisted that he would never give up on the IRA. Bulger had previously donated to NORAID and shipped weapons, guns, and a block of C4 plastic, plastic explosives in a van to the provisional IRA in the early 1980s. 
After meeting with the IRA Chief of Staff Joe Cahill, Bolger and Patrick Nee raised $1 million by shaking down drug dealers in South Boston and Charlestown. This money was used to buy weapons for the Charleston. IRA. Cha- Charleston. Oh, sorry, Chas- Charleston and, and Southie. Yeah. There we go. The money was used to buy weapons for the IRA, which would be shipped across the Atlantic in the trawler Valhalla. Bulger also personally donated some of his own weapons. Before the use of the Valhalla, Bulger shipped overseas a shipment of guns and C4 in a van at least once. That's a, in it, a van? Is it on a cargo ship? Potentially. But, dude, like that's, that's actually extraordinarily impressive that they got involved in an international conflict and like provided to that that would be like a random group in the united states right now like essentially sending guns to a rebellion in the middle east i have a feeling this is going to come back to bite them though international arms trafficking yeah oh i mean it's definitely (laughs) yeah it's definitely not good however it's it's impressive oh very impressive that they could have criminally very impressive yeah that they could have orchestrated that yeah honestly bordering on pretty cool not yeah, I'm 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 on the uh, I'm on the cool one. If we do a the coolest thing, uh, this is my this is my pick. I'm just saying okay. that now. Cool, 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 cool. Good to know. Um, where were we? Okay, Bulger was annoyed when he learned that the IRA men he supplied had burned the van that contained the weapons. They're just that's a mistake. That yeah, was a what mistake. What the hell were they thinking? Do they know who they got that from? On September 13, 1984, Bulger, Weeks, and Nee supervised the loading of the Valhalla. The final cache included 91 rifles, 8 submachine guns, 13 shotguns, 51 handguns, 11 bulletproof vests, 70,000 rounds of ammunition, plus an array of hand grenades and rocket heads. Oh boy, that is a lot. The Valhalla rendezvoused 120 miles off the Irish West Coast with the Mauritia Anne, an IRA ship that had sailed from the trolley. During the return voyage, the Irish Navy stopped the Mauritia Anne and seized the hidden arsenal, arresting IRA members Martin Ferris, Mike Brown, and John Crawley. The operation had been compromised by IRA member Sean O'Callaghan, who was an informant for the Irish National Police. Dude, this story is just all informants fucking everything up. Yeah. Literally. When Valhalla crew member John McIntyre was arrested for trying to visit his estranged wife. Imagine getting arrested for that. Damn. He confessed his role in the weapon smuggling to Boston police. McIntyre implicated Bulger in the botch... I'm going to start that over. McIntyre implicated Bulger in the botch smuggling to FBI agent Roderick Kennedy. But Hmm. Kennedy insisted that Bulger's handler, John Connolly again overheard him talking about someone on the Valhalla cooperating. Connolly confirmed Bulger's suspicions of McIntyre, leading Bulger and cohort Steve Flemmie to murder McIntyre for his betrayal. Cheers, buddy. That is a sip. Another murder. Oh, my God. According to Kevin Weeks, when Bulger met with McIntyre, as Ryan is just shaking his head with the purplest teeth I've ever seen... This has been this has been quite the trip so far, buddy. Yeah, man. What uh, this is uh, this is a rough one to start off on for the old liver. Yeah, you know no. This mean? is this is a. Uh, oh, we should wait till next week's one. According to Kevin Weeks, we should pick like just regular like businessmen that are maybe doing a little like tax evasion. You know what I mean? Just that would be healthier for our livers. Yeah. Maybe not as fun to talk. No, about. No, it's going to be extraordinarily yeah. boring. However. <laughs> 
Oh, man. According to Kevin Weeks, when Bulger met with McIntyre in a South Boston house, he, avo- he hoped to avoid murdering the informer and offered to send him to South America with money and the understanding that he was never to contact his family or friends again. Oof, boy. But murder, get- getting killed, yeah. or going to South America. Yeah, I mean, he just got put in the witness protection program without the witness or protection portion of the program. Yeah, and basically, Bulger would know where he was at all times, yeah. and the police would probably, knowing this Connolly guy, would probably get to know where he yeah. is, and I don't think that would turn out well either. Um, basically, he was fucked. Mm. Um, <laughs> after interrogating McIntyre over several hours, however, Bulger decided that he did not have the discipline to cut ties with everyone. He then killed McIntyre and went upstairs to take a nap, while Weeks and Flemmy removed the corpse's teeth with pliers and buried McIntyre in the basement. Can you imagine? Unbelievable. Well, uh, I have a problem taking a nap when I have like a little bit of a work issue. Or, like, I forget to, like, I'm thinking about if I turn my car lights off. Yes. And that's, like, my yeah. stress for taking a nap. This guy killed another human being and just fell asleep. I have anxiety after work on Friday because I don't know when to let myself relax. Yeah. This guy kills someone after interrogating him, maybe torturing him for several hours, and then goes and takes a nap. Unbelievable. Wow. How do you psychologically? I get that you are poor. I get that you are a street kid. I get all of this. Psychologically, how how do you form that in your head? How do you how are you able to do that to another human being with the nonchalance that Bulger has? It's the acid, man. <laughs> it's the MK Ultra Lar- experiment. Man. Large amounts of acid. You should read up on that shit. Yeah, it's, I listen to a podcast about it. Yeah, it's fucking I'm definitely crazy. going to. In the summer of 1991, Bulger and Kevin Weeks, along with associates Patrick and Michael Linsky, came into possession of the winning Massachusetts lottery ticket, which had been bought at a store he owned. The four men shared a prize of around $14 million. Bulger was widely thought to have obtained his share of the jackpot illegitimately. Um, yeah, I'd say uh, a big old no shit on that one. Yeah. Yeah, he $14 million. Yeah, he just didn't randomly win a lottery. No, I have a feeling that word got around town in Southie that someone had the winning ticket, maybe couldn't cash it immediately, and Bulger paid, a, paid him a little visit, paid him or her a little visit. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. God, this guy's a jerk. Downfall. <laughs> Dude, can you imagine Downfall. winning the lottery and you're just like, okay, I have all of this money, and then some guy just like sneaks in your door and puts an ice pick in your mouth? Sounds kind of hot. <laughs> well, do you think you think Bulger paid him? Hypothetically. Do you think he was like, I'll give you $500,000 for this? Or do you think he was just like, yo, hand this over, you're fucking dead? Yeah. Why would he give up, why would he give up money? Because he knows he's about to get $14 million. I know, but like, death is a good, like, it's a good conductor to get that. You don't need to pay. Like, you're just giving up money at that point. Death is the ultimate, I'm going to kill you unless you give me this. That's incentive enough. I think Bulger had the ultimate fuck you attitude because he knew with his connections within law enforcement that he could get away with pretty much anything. Yeah, I agree. I think there's no way he paid. He had an FBI agent, a uh, a lieutenant, Lieutenant and multiple local policemen just 
on his dime on his payroll yeah, yeah. unbelievable man um this is titled downfall so we're getting towards the end here in April 1994, a joint task force of the DEA, the Massachusetts State Police, and the Boston Police Department launched a probe of Bolger's gambling operations. The FBI, by the time considered compromised, was not informed. Good. Really good. After a number of bookmakers agreed to testify to having paid protection money to Bolger, a federal case was built against him under the RICO Act. Another rat, man. Just yep. continue, like, just so many rats in this This story. is literally a story of informants. Yeah. That's all it 100%. is. According to Kevin Weeks, in 1993 and 1994, before the pinches came down, Jimmy and Stevie were traveling on the French and Italian Riviera. The two of them traveled all over Europe, sometimes separating for a while. Sometimes they took girls. Sometimes the two of them just went. They would rent cars and travel all through Europe. It was more preparation than anything, getting ready for another life. They didn't ask me to go. Not that I would have wanted to go. Yeah, fucking right, dude. Uh, hey, um... So we're, we're going to Europe. We're going to be with a bunch of um, German models um, in Berlin. Yep. Uh, and then we're going to the south of France, and we're going to yacht for a little bit. Um, like, you wouldn't want to go, right? I mean, we no, don't good, want to man. not invite you. Yeah, no, I'm good, man. Like, I got a good thing in Boston, and, like, I'm making some pretty good money, and, you know, I'm, I'm fine. You know, it, it is February. It's pretty cold in Boston. You sure... You're okay? Yeah, like, shoveling my driveway every morning is, like, pretty therapeutic to me. Okay. And I'm, I love, like, salting my steps and stuff. So I'm going to stay here, man. Just okay, gotcha. Um, yeah, and could you murder that guy on Tuesday, by the way? Uh, the guy we talked about last week? Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely going to have to I'll, – I'll look through my schedule, but should be, should be, should be. Fun. Okay, good, yeah. good. Thank you. Yeah, I'll pay you when I get back, okay. um, uh, which I anticipate will be – in 2011, okay. but <laughs> um, they they didn't ask me to go. Not that I would have wanted to. Sorry, Kevin. I thought I would have wanted, like, man. Yeah, God. Jimmy had prepared for the run for years. He had established a whole other person, Thomas Baxter, with a complete ID and credit cards in that name. He had even joined associations in Baxter's name, building an entire portfolio for the guy. He had always said you had to be ready to take off on short notice, and he was. He's smart. right. I mean, yeah, very smart. Very smart. He had also set up safe deposit boxes containing cash, jewelry, and passports in locations across North America and Europe, including Florida, Oklahoma, Montreal, Dublin, London, Birmingham, and Venice. In December 1994, he was informed by retired FBI agent John Connolly that sealed indictments had come in from the Department of Justice and that the FBI was set to make arrests during the Christmas season. In response, bad time to arrest people. Yeah, terrible time to Dude, arrest it's people. The- like it's the most joyous time of year Imagine, just let it let it go to like january it's fine <laughs> imagine getting arrested well it's also kind of like a huge fuck you to arrest you at that time like yeah i'm taking you away from your kids on christmas basically yeah, yeah. but i mean they a thousand percent deserve all of that oh 100 imagine uh you shouldn't even have kids no imagine going to um cri- imagine going christmas tree shopping getting the biggest one because you're the richest guy in town yeah and then um 14 fbi agents Come from behind and are just like, um, Mr. Whitey Bulger, you are arrested for literally every crime ever committed ever. Yeah. I mean, well-deserved, though. Yes. Well-deserved. Yes. Um, the funny thing is, he fled Boston on December 23rd, 1994, two days before Christmas, accompanied by his common-law wife, Christmas. Teresa Stanley. That When were you born again? Uh, April 8th, 1994. Yes. Social yeah. Security is. No, I'm just kidding. Would you, uh, would you get I don't fucking know. (laughs) 
New crib, maybe. Oh, yeah. Um, after fleeing Boston, Bulger and Stanley. So um, I believe that this Teresa Stanley comes up big later. So just doing a little scroll of his Wikipedia page before this. So okay. uh, remember that name, Teresa Stanley. Is that a uh, male or female? That is a female. Okay. Teresa tends to be a female name. Yeah, just curious. These people have a lot of weird names. So that, just, they yeah. that they do. You ever hear the Johnny Cash song, Boy Named Sue? I have. It's really good. Yes, I believe. Wasn't that covered by someone? I don't know, but it shouldn't have been covered. Yeah, I agree. Um, what do you think about Space Jam 2? You want to make a Space Jam 2? I'm kind of down if it's LeBron. Absolutely not. It's really? a Dude, It's it just needs to be preserved. It's a classic movie. Keep it as is. I'm a purist. I'm a classic purist. Like, just keep it. Think about LeBron going against the Monstars, which is just the starting five of the Golden M-O-N. State Warriors. M-O-N. Stars. <laughs> what a Monstars. <laughs> M-O-N. The Muggsy Bogues character. Stars. <laughs> After fleeing Boston, Bolger and Stanley spent four days over Christmas in Selden, New York. Dude, this guy had the balls to just like stay in the States before spending New Year's Day in a hotel in New Orleans' French Quarter. Great place, by the way. I love New Orleans. Yeah, that's on the, uh, that's on the list to go. Oh, 100%. Should be. On January 5th, 1995, Bulger prepared to return to Boston, believing that it had been a false alarm. That night, however, Stephen Fleming was arrested outside a Boston restaurant by the DEA. Dude, if they had waited a day, they might have gotten both of them. Yeah. Yeah. Damn. Boston police detective Michael Fleming, Stephen's brother. No shit. No way. Boston police detective Michael Fleming, Stephen's brother, informed weeks of the arrest. Wow. He was on the take. Obviously. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Oh, my God. It's your brother, dude. man. Jesus Christ. Weeks immediately passed the information on to Bulger, who altered his plans. Oh, my God. Bulger and Stanley spent the next three weeks traveling among New York, Los Angeles, and San Francisco before Stanley decided that she wanted to return to her children. They traveled to Clearwater, Florida, where Bulger retrieved his Tom Baxter identification from a safe deposit box. He then drove to Boston and dropped off Teresa in a parking lot. He met at Malibu Beach in Dorchester with Weeks, who had brought with him Bulger's girlfriend, Catherine Gregg. I thought he, I thought he had Teresa. He is like, dude. It's, I mean, he I has got, a lot. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it, by the way, listeners, if you have not listened to the song "Mo Bamba" by Sheck West, um, that is a fantastic song, and that's what that's I good. was just referencing. Um, okay, so now he has a girlfriend. So he had a common-law wife. Now he has a girlfriend, Catherine Gregg. Bulger and Gregg then went on the run together. So he drops his other, he drops his first girl off and then just takes the other girl. Yeah. And now they're going on the run together. Yep. Loyal. Loyal, man. Yeah. Like the from a, loyal. yeah, yeah. Like why? You know what you're getting into. You know what you're getting into, but um, you probably will never have to work again due to the money that he has. True. Um, you are definitely harboring a fugitive, but uh Love does some uh, strange things. Yeah. I know, but like, does does the money outweigh the crimes that you're obviously going to be convicted of if caught? I think it was all about like passion and love, probably. Okay. All right. So we'll see where Catherine Gregg goes. In his memoirs, Weeks. Wow, this guy's got. A book. Dude, we, Weeks. We is, fucking yeah, read I was going to say Weeks is like. He's got his shit figured out yeah. now. He's, he told literally everyone everything. Yeah, he spilled everything, yeah. literally. In his memoirs, Weeks describes a clandestine meeting with Bulger and Greg in Chicago, Illinois. Bulger reminisced fondly about his time hiding out with a family in Louisiana. He told Weeks, who had replaced him as head of the Winter Hill Gang, if anything comes down, 
put it on me. As they adjourned to a nearby Japanese restaurant, Bulger finally revealed how exhausted he was with life on the run. He told Weeks, Every day out there is another day I beat them. Every good meal is a meal they can't take away from me. In, mid in mid-November 1995, Weeks and Bulger met for the last time at the lion statues at the front of the New York City Public Library and adorned for dinner at a nearby restaurant. This motherfucker was so in public for so long dude yeah. for for and so december 23rd 1994 to mid-november 1994 yeah, a year dude i know in the states i know there are there's a lot of trends here though with being at restaurants and getting pinched. i mean you have to eat obviously but mm. from a public restaurant standpoint there's been like three arrests Fleming got arrested there there's and been murders donahue and halloran yeah. got murdered yep. being at a restaurant um, dude, I feel like in most mob movies, like they'll just like bust like the Godfather, yeah, um, gun in the fucking toilet, you know, or above the toilet. Um, restaurants play a common theme. They really do. They really do. Well, it's a common place, man. It's you. True. You meet up with people, you eat, you have a good time. Like that's a that's a good time place, and then you get killed after. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Deservingly so, but it sounds like a normal Saturday night for your boy. Yeah, yeah. In his memoir, okay, we got that all right. Um, at the end of our dinner, he seemed more aware of everything around him. His tone was a little more serious, and there wasn't as much joking as usual. He repeated the phrase he had used before that a rolling stone gathers no moss. Dude, this guy stays with the platitudes. Yeah, man. He's got he, hella quotes. Yeah, but like, I feel like that's the kind of person that just purposely researches those things and then, like, just is like, Season opportunities, like I'm going to use this. Thing. I feel like everything is rehearsed with him. Yeah, I no, feel I like agree. It's a movie script. Yeah, yeah. You know? He's just like, I can't wait to use this Rolling Stone quote. Oh I'm like, I'm so excited, this... and then he sees it, and then he's just dick rock hard. Here it is, Catherine. Um, I I'm going to use this Moss line, um, with Kevin at at dinner. Um, what do you what do you think about this? Can we rehearse this for a few minutes? Um, you know, the moss and the stone. Um, yeah, okay. Get it? Because it's continually rolling. There's <laughs> no time for you to sit down and collect the moss. <laughs> Which told me that he knew he was going to be on the move again. I got the feeling that he was resigning himself to the fact that he wasn't coming back up until then. And if you heard that, Ryan is pouring the last of our wine. Good. We've done a good job, man. Yeah, we did. We did all right here. I hope the people listening, if uh, the five listeners that we will probably get on our first episode have been following along and playing with the drinking game, I hope you have not pl been playing with liquor because um, it might be a good pregame or you might be dead. Um, up until then, I believed that there was a chance that he could beat the case. However, at that point, there was something different going on with him. I didn't fully understand all the aspects of this case. It would be another six months before it became clear. Yet at that moment in that restaurant in New York, I sensed that he had moved to a new place in his mind. It was over. He would never return to Southie. On November, mm. and he was accurate, on November 17th, 1999, Weeks was arrested by a combined force of the DEA and the Massachusetts State Police. Although by, his, by this time he was aware of Bulger's FBI deal, he was determined to remain faithful to the neighborhood code of silence. However, while awaiting trial in Rhode Island's Wyatt Federal Prison, Weeks was approached by a fellow inmate, a made man in the Petrarchia, God damn it, the crime family. The inmate told him, kid, what are you doing? Are you going to take it up the ass for these guys? Remember, you can't rat on a rat. Those guys have been giving up everyone for 30 years. 
Smart guy. Ratception. There we go. Ratception. Um, you get that. You get told that quote. You just get arrested for the first time in your life. You get maybe it wasn't the first, but you get that that quote told to you. Um, said that to you. I go white. I say everything I've known for the last however many years. Yeah. I'm about to go against. Um, but he's completely fucking right. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. God damn it. In the aftermath, Weeks decided to cut a deal with federal prosecutors and revealed where almost every penny and body was buried. Writing in, oh my god, Dude, writing this guy's in, so much information. He was he's the key. He's he was the key his right hand guy. Yeah, yeah, I mean, he's the key to this, this entire everything, story. Yeah. Everything. We writing in 2006. Weeks were called. I had known all along, however, that it would not be easy for anyone to capture Jimmy. If he saw them coming, he would take them with him. He wouldn't hesitate. Even before he went on the run, he would always say, let's all go to hell together. And he meant it. I knew that Jimmy wouldn't go to trial. He would rather plead out a life sentence than put his family through the embarrassment of a trial. If he had a gun on him, he would go out in a blaze of glory rather than spend the rest of his life in jail. But I don't think they'll ever catch him. Um... I'd say that's pretty accurate. Yeah. I'd say he'd probably try to blast some fools like oh, for sure. on his way down. For sure. Like that kind of person, he just spent his entire life being a criminal. He's not going to like just give in. No, not at all. Um, this is titled Manhunt. The first confirmed sighting of Bulger before his capture was in London in 2002. However, there were unconfirmed sightings elsewhere. FBI agents were sent to Uruguay to investigate a lead. Good that's like team. the, uh, yeah, that's like the, uh, Hitler conspiracy theory that he's in, that he's in Argentina. Argentina. That's a story for another time. Yeah. Kind of some crazy shit. It is. With that. Um, other agents were set to stake out the 60th memorial of the Battle of Normandy celebrations as Bulger is reportedly an enthusiastic fan of military history. Later reports of a sighting in Italy in April 2007 proved false. Two persons on video footage shot in Terramina, Terramina, Sicily, formerly thought to be Bulger and his lover Catherine Gregg walking in the streets of the city center were finally identified as a tourist couple from Germany. Imagine you are mistaken for a mass murderer. It'd be unreal. My God. In 2010. It's just a nice German couple that's trying to like go on holiday and sure, sure shit, the guy looks like Whitey Bulger. Honey, you want a Pilsner? <laughs> uh, we in Sicily. Why, why are you interrogating me? I've, I've, I've done nothing. <laughs> I've done nothing. Ryan's actually German, so he has a way better German <laughs> accent than I do. I know you want a Pilsner or a, or a wine. A wine. I've done absolutely nothing. I don't, <laughs> I don't understand why you're interrogating me. <laughs> Perfect, man. In 2010, the FBI turned its focus to Victoria, British Columbia on Vancouver Island. In pursuit of Bulger, a known book lover, the FBI visited bookstores in the area, questioned employees, and distributed wanted posters. Following his arrest... Bulger revealed that instead of being reclusive, he had in fact traveled frequently with witnesses coming forward that they had seen him on the Santa Monica Pier and elsewhere in Southern California. Remember I said that I have a link to this story. I'm going to continue to read that. I'll come back to that. A a confirmed report by an off-duty police officer after a San Diego screening of the departed also led to a search in Southern California that lasted a few weeks. Jack Nicholson played Whitey Bulger in The Departed. Um, after 16 years and 12 years on the FBI's uh, 10 most wanted fugitives list, Bulger was arrested in Santa Monica, California, my hometown, on June 22nd, really? 2011. He was 81 years old at the time of his arrest. Wow. So he was arrested. Here's the apartment building. They have a picture of it right here. 
This is um this is like on pretty much the main street of Santa Monica. So if you have you, so you know that building. So I don't know the specific building. Okay. Um, my stepfather has an apartment. Soon to be stepfather has an apartment to the south of that apartment. That's it's like kind of a high rise. You wouldn't miss yeah. it if you were driving along that okay. road. And then to the north, you continue going Santa Monica Pier, yeah. all that shit. Um, unbelievable that. 16 years at large, 12 years on the FBI's most wanted list, spent mostly right under the nose of American law enforcement. Yeah, that's pretty – I mean, that that's like pretty impressive. You know impressive. what? I'm going I'm to give a golf clap to that one. Yeah, I'm going to – yeah, that's that's a golf clap as well. Guy's a prick, but – I'm wondering if the, if the old age had anything to do with it. I wonder if like they had updated photos. So – I mean, that's uh, – dude, like so 12 years – so here's an age progression of him. Um, they got a really, that looks like every old man I've ever seen. They in my also life. got this incredibly wrong. Okay, because his picture is at the top, and this is what he actually looked like. Gotcha. Okay, so this guy is yeah. Again, this is every typical. It old looks man like I've every seen. other old white man. The yeah. age progression had no beard. Bald. Um, had a little bit more of a veiny neck and a ball cap. And on. a slimmer face. Yes, and a slimmer face. This guy has a full gray beard, a very bald head, and um, the eyes didn't match. He up looks like whatsoever. now he looks like the balloon, the balloon head. Yes, yeah, he kind of has a balloony head. He's yes. got a fucking thick dome. Yeah, he really does. Um, okay, so we he was eighty one years old at the time of his arrest. Eighty one. This guy's still alive, dude. I mean, but you know, he did it right, like your life's pretty much coming to a close. Like it, at, right. at most you have 15 to 20 years at like that is yeah, pushing. Like the peak. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, yeah. like, so you lived your entire life doing all this terrible shit. And I mean, it's, it's not that bad, right? Like he's 81. Oh, well, yeah, he did good. Do you think he thought he would get caught? I don't think people, in that mental state, think they are ever going to get. I think they're they. I think that they think they're inv- invincible. Yeah, probably. I mean, he had gone forty six years without um, ever even sniffing arrest, mm-hmm. which is unbelievable for yeah. the crimes that he was doing. He was captured as a result of the work of the Bulger Fugitive Task Force, which consisted of FBI agents and a deputy U.S. marshal, according to retired FBI agent Scott Backen. Here you have somebody who is far more sophisticated than some 18-year-old who killed someone in a drive-by. To be a successful fugitive, you have to cut all contacts from your previous life. He had the means and kept a low profile. A reward of $2 million had been offered for information leading to his capture. The amount was second only to Osama bin Laden's capture Mm. reward on the FBI's 10 most wanted fugitives list. Bulger had been featured on the television show America's Most Wanted 16 times, first in 1995 and finally on October 2nd, 2010. According to authorities, the arrests were a direct result of the media campaign launched by the FBI in 14 markets across the country where Bulger and Greg reportedly had ties. The campaign focused on Greg, describing her as an animal lover who frequently went to beauty salons. Mm. Authorities received a tip from a woman in Iceland that Bulger was living in an apartment near a beach in Santa Monica. The Boston Globe identified the tipster as Anna Oh boy, I'm gonna mess this name uh, up. Icelandic names are next to impossible. So Bjorn's daughter, Bjorn, Bjorn's daughter. 
a former model, actress, and Miss Iceland, 1974, who lived in Bulger's neighborhood. A day later, using a ruse, agents, and other task force member lured Mr. Bulger out of his apartment, arrested him without incident, then went in the house and arrested Greg. Bulger was charged with murder, conspiracy to commit murder, extortion, narcotics, narcotics distribution, um, and money laundering. Are there different counts on that or just one per category? Oh, there's probably so many fucking charges. Yeah, yeah, those are just like the, I guess, the ones that they nipped him on. Um, Cheers. Yeah. Arrest. Mm. I feel like that's going to be our longest in between sips of any guy that we profile. Probably forty six years. That's yeah. It's yeah. That's almost embarrassing. It really. But he yeah, had from every, a lot, he had everyone from a lot in his pocket though. That's true. Yeah. And he's constantly like moving. True. So it's hard to locate somebody true. that's constantly yeah, he's on the a move. Fugitive for sixteen years. Yeah, that's crazy. Man, that's unbelievable. Uh, let's see. Where were we? Um, agents found more than eight hundred thousand in cash. In cash. 30 firearms, 30, what's he doing with 30 firearms? Why would you have 30 guns? You need like, he wanted, he actually did want to go out in a blaze of glory, I think. You need two. Yeah. One for you, one for your girl. That's it. And some ammunition. 30, man. 30 guns. What are you going to do with 30 guns? You don't need it. You think he was still trafficking? Potentially. Potentially. And fake IDs at the apartment. Carmen Ortiz, U.S. Attorney for the District of Massachusetts, said she believes the death penalty is not an option in the federal charges Bulger faces in her district, but that he could face the death penalty for two cases outside the district. In Oklahoma, where Bulger is alleged to have ordered the killing of businessman Roger Wheeler Sr. in 1981, Tulsa County District Attorney Tim Harris said it is our intention to bring Bulger to justice and to be held accountable for the murder of Mr. Wheeler. In Florida, Miami-Dade State Attorney Catherine Fernandez Rundle. Fuck. Rundle. Rundle. Grundle. Rundle. Yeah. Well, you have a beautiful name, Catherine Fernandez, and then you put a Rundle yeah. at the end. That's a brutal That's terrible, name, man. man. Just go by Catherine Fernandez. Fuck your husband's yeah. last name. That's awful. That After a 16-year delay, I will be working to ensure that a Miami jury has the opportunity to look Bolger in the eyes and determine his fate. Immediately after being brought back to Boston, Bolger began talking to authorities. Of course he started fucking talking to the authorities. He was talking to them for years. The entire time, yeah. Jesus. He said that during his days as a fugitive, he often went back and forth across the border to Mexico to buy medicine for his heart disease. He also visited Alcatraz Prison and had a souvenir photograph taken wearing a striped suit (laughs) standing behind mock prison bars. This motherfucker went back to the prison that he was in in the 50s (laughs) as a fugitive. Dude, I've been to Alcatraz before. Not only do you have to stand in line to get on the boat that takes you to the island to Alcatraz and then stand with your entire group along with the 20 other groups that are in this massive prison. Dude, you are like close to other people the entire day. It's like an entire day. Yeah, that sounds like a pain in the ass. Oh, dude, it's great. Oh, really? Well, you're not like, I'm not, when I say close, I'm just like, you are in close proximity to your group. Yeah, like someone could potentially notice you. My thing is, I'm not even thinking of that. I'm thinking of like this old guy He's going purposely out of his way to just go to the one of the biggest tourist attractions on the West Coast just to be an asshole. Dude, this guy had stones. He yeah, really did. Well, I think after orders, a, man. I think after a while you would probably stop giving a shit. I feel like I'd want to be caught. Dude, once you once you kill somebody, you don't give a fuck. Like true, you're just gonna do whatever you want. True. Do you think by the end he was like, oh, fucking finally, like I don't have to be on the run anymore. I'm old. I'm gonna I, die. I feel, dude, I feel like at a certain point you do. 
Yeah. We're just like, I'm done with this life that I have. Remember in the seven, remember in the seven five when Michael Dowd was yes. like, yeah, exactly. Finally, a yeah. weight has been lifted. Yes. I got too deep, and now it's all over. Thank God. Thank. Watch God. the seven five documentary on cops in the in the seventy fifth precinct in what Brooklyn, right? It was East New York, Brooklyn, New York, and yeah. um, the production company. Please pay us for that. Yeah. It's a great Free documentary. Ads. One of my favorites. So, 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 so good. Um, let's see. Where were we? Many anticipated and some feared that Bulger, in exchange for favorable treatment in sentencing, would have much to tell authorities about corruption at the local, state, and federal levels, which allowed him to operate his criminal enterprise for so long. Bulger was arraigned in federal court on July 6, 2011. He pleaded not guilty to 48 charges, including 19 counts of murder, extortion, money laundering, obstruction of justice, perjury, narcotics distribution, and weapons violations. Um, that's a lot, man. All right, but he did not get charged for international weapons. Um, yeah, no, it does not sound like it. Man. That's the most impressive, and he got away with it. Yeah, I think that sticks as the coolest moment so far. I agree. Uh, in a 2011 interview, Kevin Weeks expressed surprise at Bulger's decision to cooperate after his arrest. Weeks said, I don't understand because he's not the same as I remember him. I can't believe he's so chatty right now. So I don't know what he's doing. Dude, he said that gritting his fucking teeth. Just want to stick in, wanted to stick a gun in his face. Oh, absolutely. 100%. I can't believe he's so fucking yeah. shitty. Yeah, God, I can totally see it. Weeks added that he is not afraid of Bulger and that the residents of Boston should not be either. I don't think he's Pablo Escobar where he can just walk out of, pri- of a prison cell and come to South Boston or anywhere. Uh, no, no one is worried about him. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I, mean, I, it's a, I mean, completely different situation. It's not the same country. Very true. You know what I mean? Like Very it's true. a def- completely different justice system and well, Columbia, no shit. Columbia didn't actually imprison Pablo Escobar. No, if you've they seen put, Narcos, him, in, they they put him in his own prison. They put him in a country club that it's he ran. Unbelievable. Yeah. Go see Narcos. Netflix pay us. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let's learn a little bit about Catherine Gregg. Um, Bulger's companion during his years as a fugitive was his longtime girlfriend, Catherine Gregg, born April 3rd, 1951. She was 67 years old. She is 67 years old. Um, who is almost 22 years younger than Bulger. I actually had that thought. If I were her at some point when he's like 81 and I'm 20 years younger than somebody, like turn him in, get money. He had, what was the, what was the? $2 million. Okay. You get $2 million. You get to live out the rest of your life with $2 million. And she's such an, oh my God. She's such an accomplice. Well, she's getting arrested as fuck. Even if she does confess to knowing where he is and all this shit. I don't think she gets a reward because she was complicit. Yeah, but if you turn... I feel like if you turn somebody in and cooperate with the authorities, you could potentially yeah. either lower your sentence or get off mm-hmm. completely. Well, I'm pretty sure that this guy, Kevin Weeks, who literally admitted to killing people, actually never served a day in jail because he was an informant. So yeah. um, I do agree with you, but I think she still would have gotten arrested. Greg grew up in Boston and had identical twin sister, Margaret, and a younger brother, David. Dude, Their father she's was terrible looking. She's old, man. They're identical twins. They have the, they look I, completely identical. I highly recommend if you are following along. Yeah, just, just put it like a side-by-side. Take your phone. Take your computer. They really do look exact. She's basically him without a beard. Well, no, 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 no. No, they switched the beard and the hair. 
So Whitey Bulger <laughs> is bald with a beard, and then obviously this lady does not have a beard, but his beard is attached to her head. Yeah. Well, and you, they, they're identical. You know what I'm really worried about with her? She's got a thick Adam's apple, man. Oh, dude, that's bigger than mine. It's thick. She's got, like, traps. <laughs> Yo, she's got a swole. What if she was just spending the whole 16 years just lifting on Muscle Beach in Venice? Oh, just like... Just Arnold. Yeah, just, just sh- shoulder shrugs. So many dips. Yep. And just mad shrugs. A lot of shrugs. <laughs> about, at about age 20, Greg married Robert Bobby McCongle um, of South Boston, a Boston firefighter. He was from a family that led the Mullen Gang and was injured during a mob gunfight in 1969. Uh, you might recognize that from earlier because he was a part or, uh, I don't know, in some way involved with the Mullen Gang. Before his 1987 drug overdose death, Bobby McCongle reportedly held Bulger responsible for the murder of his brothers. Twins Donald McCongle and Paul McCongle were killed during fighting between the Mullen and Colleen gangs, like I mentioned before. The body of Paul McCongle lay hidden and buried for 25 years on Tinan... God, I'm gonna. People from Boston are gonna hate me. Tinian Beach in Dorchester. 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 Is it Tinian Beach? It's T E N E A N. Tinian. I couldn't tell you. I don't know. Greg's uh, twin sister Margaret is the widow of Paul McCongle. Greg's younger brother David Greg was a close associate of Bulger, um, and David was found shot dead on Cape Cod. A death characterized as a suicide. No, it was not. We will sip to that because that was a fucking murder. Yeah. Cheers. Remember in uh, The Departed when Jack Nicholson shoots the the guy and the girl on the beach at the very beginning? Yes. And he's like, ah, she fell weird. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Very underrated part of that movie. Oh, God. Just another, like, Scorsese just little throw in right there. Ah, she fell weird. Just gets shot back in the head. Oh, God. Greg, you want her to fall, man? (laughs) (laughs) Just flat on her face, probably. Uh, Jesus. Greg met Bulger in her late 20s after she divorced McCongle. She worked as a dental hygienist. Greg had been described as intelligent, hardworking, and educated, although very subservient and dominated by Bulger. There we go. She and Bulger lived together for a time at her home in Squantum, a section of Quincy, Massachusetts. Mm. Quincy. While on the run, Greg confided to a neighbor that she feared that Bulger was suffering from senile dementia. Um, yeah, it's, it's acid. pretty accurate. From the acid. Acid and age. And, um, you know, just having the conscience of about 50 dead bodies yeah. on you. That'll probably I, do it. It's a, it's a long lifetime of crime. We'll yes. definitely do that. Yeah. Imagine going to sleep at night. Well, he did take a nap after murdering someone. Yeah, he has no problems. Yeah. Uh, Greg had been wanted by the FBI since 1999. The criminal complaint against her alleges that she harbored a fugitive, Whitey Bulger. She was represented in the criminal proceedings by the prominent criminal attorney, Kevin Reddington of Brockton, Mass. After being captured alongside Bulger, Greg sought release on bail and home confinement, a request that was denied. Greg initially indicated that she would go on trial rather than accept a plea bargain. In March 2012, however, Greg pleaded guilty to conspiracy to harbor a fugitive, identity fraud, and conspiracy to commit identity fraud. On June 12, 2012, she was sentenced to eight years in federal prison. Fuck off. She declined to speak during, during her sentencing. Eight years, man. It's not a In lot. a federal prison. Yeah, I guess that's a lot. Federal prison, eight years. She didn't really do anything. She was just, like, banging the old guy. Yeah, it's a lot, though. You a know? Of... She got, she's out, though, right? 
Um, so that was in 2012. So let's see. Um, in September 2015, Greg was indicted on a charge of criminal contempt stemming from her refusal to testify before a grand jury about whether other people aided Bulger while he was a fugitive. In February of 2016, Greg pleaded guilty to this charge. Greg's attorney recommended 12 months in prison while prosecutors citing Greg's unrepentant obstruction asked for 37 months. In April 2016, U.S. District Judge F. Dennis Sailor the Fourth, damn, that's a name. Sentence, Greg. That, you're an asshole. Yeah, you're an asshole. Don't Very, don't put the fourth in there. It, no one cares how many times your name has been passed. Very out. old money, Northeast. Definitely from Connecticut. Oh, for sure, absolutely. Yeah. But no one cares. Yeah, no one cares. The fourth. Yeah, like homie. At that point, like fuck off with that. Just put your name. Yeah. Like what? F we, F Dennis Sailor. Yeah, What's we, the F? You're just asking people to be like, or that's just like fishing for comments of like, oh, wow, your name has been in your family four other or three other times. Cool. Just shut the fuck up and put your regular name. You think it goes by F or you think it goes by Dennis? Oh, Dennis. Dennis? Yeah, yeah for sure. That's my grandfather's name. Um, Dennis Saylor sentenced Greg then midway through her sentence for harboring, harboring Bulger to 21 months on the contempt charge, pushing her release date to late 2020. Um, so she's going to get out when she is 69 years old. <laughs> Greg had served much of her eight-year sentence at the Federal Correction Institute, um, Waseca in Minnesota. Another theme of this story, federal prison. Tons of that. So much yeah, federal prison. Yeah, a lot prison. of federal, yep. Of, I mean, rightfully so, though. It's a lot of crossing state lines. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Um, but it also been detained at various points in Rhode Island ahead of proceedings in the criminal contempt case. Okay, now on to Bulger's trial. On June 12, 2013, Bulger went on trial in South Boston's John Joseph Moakley U.S. courthouse before Judge Denise J. Casper on 32 counts of racketeering and firearms possession. They actually brought him back to Southie for the case. That's kind of unbelievable knowing the clout that he had in that town. Maybe not at that time, though. Yeah, they definitely put him up in, like, the local Holiday Inn and didn't let him leave. <laughs> the racketeering counts included allegations that Bulger was complicit in 19 murders. The trial lasted two months and included the testimony of 72 witnesses. The jury began deliberations on August 6th. On August 12th, the jury convicted Bulger of 31 of 32 counts in the indictment. It took them six days to convict this guy. From a jury perspective. They entered deliberations on the 6th and he got convicted on the 12th. That is one hell of a defense attorney. Yeah. Just a little bit of For doubt. six days, dude? You're Just putting... a little bit. Like, that's good work. Yeah. Just knowing what all of the shit that he's done because it's been yeah. profiled in movies. Yeah. And in fucking the newspaper every day in the 70s and 80s and 90s. Yeah, I mean, you can't find... You'd have to put, like, a bunch of 12-year-olds on the stand. Right. And be who like, haven't seen the movie Departed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, who has no idea... Uh, has never heard of this person before. It's been depicted in everything. You can't right. find a non-biased jury. It's unbelievable. Um, let's see. Where were we? As part of the racketeering charges, the jury convicted Bulger of... 
the murders of 11 victims. I won't go into all their names because I've already mentioned them already. They also reported themselves unable to agree about the murder of Deborah Davis, though Bulger had already been found liable in her death in a civil suit. Damn, this jury was a bunch of idiots, man. Yeah, not smart people. Just very indecisive people who may have been in the pocket of some... some it was it was in South it's, Boston. I was going to say, it's, it was in South Boston. Like, No offense to South Boston, but probably not the smartest people ever. <laughs> Well, I wasn't saying that. I think that... Um, I'm saying Whitey, that, though. <laughs> Whitey Bulger just had so much presence in that yeah, town. Yeah, I mean, he probably know? did, like, he probably, like, again, to kind of bring up Pablo Escobar, probably had some form of, like, community give back. But, again... Like, a juror's parents definitely, if they hadn't been killed by Bulger, yeah. had benefited in some yeah. way, probably from his presence. Um, on November 2013... Uh, Bulger was sentenced to two terms of life imprisonment plus five years. So he got two life sentences and then five years What's on top the of that. What's the plus five years for? Just, um, you're fine. That is just so you know that you will be in prison for the rest I know, of your that's life. Weird. There's a weird. Two life sentences? That's weird to me. Just yeah. You could just say one life sentence and you get the point because you're going to die eventually. You can't come back to prison once you're dead. Yeah. I, I understand like – we want you to never even come close to the thought of that you're going to get out of jail. So we're going to give you two life sentences, but two. it's unneeded. I think at that point you just sentence him to um, you were going to stay behind a metal cage until you uh, until your heart stops beating. Yeah, just say you're yeah. you're in prison. You're going to die, die in prison, homie. Yeah. Just accept it. Two. But uh, but we're going to add five years on top of that. Yeah, that's weird. That's a weird <laughs> thing. I don't. Casper told Bulger that such a sentence was necessary given his unfathomable crimes, some of which inflicted agonizing suffering on his victims. That's it. It's yeah, it's very true. Very true. He was also reported to forfeit $25.2 million and pay $19.5 million in restitution. Damn. Yeah. He definitely did not have that. Yeah, oh, for sure not. But, no. I mean can't use it anyway so even if he did have it true prosecutors in florida and oklahoma announced after bulger's convictions that they would wait until after the sentencing concluded before deciding whether or not to persecute bulger prosecute bulger in their states bulger had already been indicted in florida for the murder of callahan and in oklahoma for the murder uh, murder of roger wheeler and could face the death penalty in those states in september of 2014 bulger entered the coleman two united states penitentiary in sumterville florida his register number in case anybody wants to know, is 02182-748. Send him letters. Send him letters. Tell him how big of a scumbag he is. Um, that pretty much, I could go on a little bit, but that is basically the entire life of Whitey Bulger yeah, uh, on summer. his Wikipedia page, man. What'd you, what do you think? Final thoughts on uh, good old Whitey? Uh, yeah, I'm like... He goes in, it's like peaks and valleys with this guy. He comes off extraordinarily dumb in some aspects, and then he, like, brings himself back. Terrible person. Awful. Um, I think the the coolest thing that he did was definitely the international arms deals. Yeah, that was... That was that was the peak for me. That was, like, the that piqued my interest the most. I, I had no idea that any, like, organized crime was involved in international conflict. The irony of that yeah. is that that got him almost caught yeah. the, the first time. Yep. Yeah, because he had to kill someone who was involved with it, and then the FBI agent, um, who I'm pretty sure got totally fucked and I think has died in jail or was in jail, yeah, um, uh, yeah that, that basically made him go on the run. 
which is wild. Um, uh, scummiest moment. Scummiest moment. Um, I'm gonna let you go. What do you? What do you For, think? Oh, it's not even a question. I had this since I heard it. Using your informant status as leverage to fuck everybody else. Yeah, that is just like a you're a terrible person for committing these crimes and then you're using a status as a rat to gain money from that. Like that's that that's just that's three tiers of horrible person. In a criminal code of ethics just straight up not allowed. Yeah, oh, and absolutely not. The fact that he did this all for his own personal gain and basically fucked everyone yeah. around him even though Flemmy and Weeks were also both talking. Um, yeah, that's, uh, I guess smart, but also really, uh, just scummy. Just, I don't think there's any other word to describe it besides yeah, I mean, you're he a scumbag. He wouldn't be alive in any other organized crime, like organization. I think in the Italian mob, he would have gotten so murdered so fast. Yeah, easily. Yeah. Just the fact that no one knew about it for until 97. Yeah. It's a long time. It's unbelievable. Um, well, that was Merlot and the mob. Um, I don't know about you, Ryan, but uh, I'm, I'm, I think, a little too drunk for one. Yeah, I'm properly drunk. Yeah, properly drunk. Um, but thank you guys for listening. Um, we will be back next week with another episode um, profiling another mob member who I still have to decide. It's um, between, between two right now. Um, they would both be very fun episodes, and I hope you guys tune in. Uh, thanks, everyone, and hope you have a great week. Peace. Peace.